Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Your daily encouragement that God has the world in the hollow of his hand. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Dr. Peter Kapsner filling in for the morning here on the 23rd of June. And, Paul, we started this show an hour ago saying that, you know, sometimes in the morning show there are shows and there are shows. There are and shows. Th- this was one of those that did not disappoint in hour one. If you didn't get a chance to catch it, Adam Carrington was great on mm-hmm. all the Supreme Court matters going through and Gary Stratton walking us through how to understand life and politics from the perspective of a believer. And I just thought he really killed it on so many different levels there. He was very insightful. Remember, the podcast will be up later this morning at MyFaithRadio.com. Look at the Mornings with Carmen show page. You'll see it there probably after 10 o'clock Central. Yeah, great stuff. Well, hour two is no less uh, anticipated by me. I know at the second half of this hour, we'll be talking with the Reverend and Dr. Raleigh Washington about matters of justice. But up first here in this hour, and we're going to bring him in a little early since this is his last segment on the morning show. Long-running Dr. David Stevens. to cry. I know. There was great anticipation for me this morning, but great grief as well. Dr. Stevens, one of my favorite people that I've had the pleasure of meeting. Good morning, David. Hey, good morning, Peter. And it's good to hear your voice. I'm missing Carmen, but uh, this is the light that we get to get back together again. Oh, absolutely. I just You've spoken so much wisdom from a health perspective over these years that I've known you. And uh, you're moving on from your role as uh, sort of the lead of the Christian Medical and Dental Association. What's up next for you? Well, I'm now CEO emeritus. That means you you work for nothing, I think. <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> but uh, I stepped down actually last fall and have been filling in and, and handling public policy for CMDA and, and media uh, since then. And uh, one of the goals has been to bring on uh, a new uh, person full time in that role. And there's a new vice president that will be taking my place, Dr. Jeff Barrows, who's just tremendous. I'm doing a lot of speaking traveling, uh, not in the last couple of months, but a uh, very full fall of travel, um, a lot of it overseas, doing a lot of work with mission hospitals. Mm. That's where I started, and I have a great passion for uh, helping them to be successful. So, uh, in fact, I have doctors coming in this weekend. I'm going to be teaching them better governance practices and leadership and all sorts of things. Uh, so I'm not I'm not retiring. I've just retreaded and moved on to a little less administration and I'll a lot more of the things I really love doing. I was going to ask you about that. Do you feel like this next season ahead is giving you a chance to really zero in on some of those things that you've historically been passionate about? It is. And I'm still helping out at CMDA. I mean, uh, well, my favorite conference all year comes up next month, and that's our fly fishing conference for trout. I lead that. (laughs) That's my hobby. That sounds like a vacation couched as a conference, Dr. Stevens, I got to tell you. That's right. That's right. And um, it's just a get together time for some members. But and then do media training, our new missionary training. I've trained over 200 doctors on how to do radio and television and Mm and trained over 600 medical missionaries. So still keeping my hand in the things I'm really passionate about and then more time with family and uh, grandkids and things like that. We're looking forward to that as well. Mm, that's great stuff. Well, if we're going to have one last rodeo together, I can't imagine a better morning to do it. So much new information coming out about COVID-19 and, and how do we deal with that as we move to the summer months and the second wave. So we'll take a short break, Dr. Stevens. When we come back, I'll ask you about some of the new evidence that maybe blood type and genetics could impact the odds about whether you get this uh, virus severe. 
Daily. So welcome again to Hour 2 on Mornings with Carmen. I'm Peter Kapsner filling in for the day. Welcome back to the show, picking up our conversation now with Dr. David Stevens. And David, there's quite a bit of news, obviously, each week with what's going on in COVID-19. And and clearly we see that there may be some information about blood type and genetics that could have an impact on how someone might end up experiencing the severity of this disease, which I guess is not too much of a surprise because when you look globally, it was hard to find a pattern for why it would hit people with such severity. Yes, clearly some underlying conditions and the age may be an impact, but that didn't translate across even cultures. So we're finding out some more information. Tell us about it. Yeah, there's new stuff coming out all the time and how we treat it, how we diagnose it, and uh, risk factors. Uh, an article this week in the New England Journal of Medicine from a group of uh, European researchers uh, found that people with blood type A, and now we talk about the different blood types A, B, A, B, and O are the four different types, but blood type A has a 40% higher risk of catching coronavirus and developing uh, severity, including respiratory failure, whereas type O, the universal donor type, who can give blood to anyone if you're type O, they have a 35% lower risk. Now, this is not something we expect to find, but it's very helpful. So if people have COVID, one of the things they're going to do, especially if they're getting seriously ill, is get their their blood type. The other thing they found is that their genes um, that patterns that also increase risk. In fact, one cluster of genes that they found uh, raised your risk by 77% of having severe disease. So this is going to enable us to do some, some practical things as well as knowing who we need to be most concerned about if they get this. Uh, my son-in-law uh, is he- help, help, heading a COVID unit in a major hospital in a big city. This is the type of things that they'll be looking at on every patient that comes in with the disease. Could some of this explain how it hit and why it hit Italy maybe so hard in the early stages of this disease, while maybe some of the Scandinavian countries comparatively have not been hit as hard? Or I'm really intrigued by Japan in terms of the lack of social distancing, and yet the rates of death and, and, and the rates even of disease spread are much lower than other places in the world. Right. And that that's going to what happens with this now is, OK, now how does this apply uh, across uh, racial lines and uh, and other factors that uh, besides blood type that gives us some indication on who to be most concerned about? You know, what's coming out with the increasing cases that we're seeing, Peter, uh, in some states and people are expressing concern about it. But what we know now that we didn't know when this happened is we probably don't need a one-size-fits-all lockdown, even if things get bad again, because there's certain people that are at risk, people from certain areas and people uh, of certain age groups. And so what some of the experts now, and I agree with them, are saying is that we should really focus on not shutting down the whole economy, but protecting those. Let me give you an example. Four out of 10 Uh, deaths were in nursing home patients. We know that's a great risk and we need to do better in protecting people in nursing homes. Four out of five that died were over age 65. Only less than 1% of the deaths were under 35, which is people that are, uh, you know, some of the older ones in that age group that are, uh, could be working. 
And so as we look at this data and realize that uh, one size doesn't fit all, then we can focus on the problem groups and not destroy the whole economy in trying to halt this thing. And Dr. Stevens, I'd be curious too, as we move forward and, and see again, local outbreaks and hotspots, uh, I've heard some science, but I don't know that I can verify it, that viruses tend to get a little bit more diluted over time. And does this, does this tend to happen with a coronavirus that it just is less virulent over time? Or can we anticipate that it's going to keep the same level of virulence moving forward? There's already some evidence that it's mutating and becoming less infective and less serious. Uh, those people that get it, uh, and we're getting a lot of that information uh, because uh, we're seeing more and more testing and uh, millions and millions of people being tested. So that's uh, that's the good news. And it's, this is what's happened with SARS and MERS, the, the Asian virus and the Mideastern virus that was a coronavirus as well. They both mutated and became less deadly. So the other thing that's happening is we're seeing progress with the vaccine. And uh, I think we can be excited about that. There uh, billions of dollars being put into this, both in Europe and here in the U.S. And uh, there's a likelihood we could have a vaccine by November. And uh, if we have that, it's going to be a game changer. Yeah, and that would be unprecedented in terms of speed to market with a vaccine, in my understanding. Oh, it is. And they, they have made it decrease the regulations surrounding this. They are combining what they call phase two and phase three in a phase one vaccine study. They give it to a small number of people looking for serious side effects. And uh, if that's okay, then they go to phase two, which is a larger group of people, uh, and they're looking for effectiveness and that type of thing. And then they go phase three to a large group of people. You're talking 20, 30,000 people and uh, and tested in those people. And so uh, they're combining phase two and phase three. The government's funding a study for uh, vaccine coming out of Europe with 30,000 Americans in the study group mm. starting next month. So, uh, yeah, we're into phase two, phase three studies, and, and that's exciting. Well, and as we look forward to further therapeutics and, and possibility, the possibility of that vaccine later this fall or winter, obviously we're still doing some things to help mitigate the transmission of the virus, including wearing masks, but that can be a little bit more challenging in the summer. I know I was at a barber here last week, and he's in his 80s at this point. I've gone to him for years, and he was talking about the lack of air conditioning in his barber shop, and, and the age that he is and wearing a mask is really challenging during the heat of summer. Yeah, and masks uh, are important, though, and probably social distancing, staying six feet away. But you can't do that in a barbershop. You right. can't do it in a restaurant. I went to the doctor yesterday. I wore a mask into the doctor's office for my annual physical. And so when the heat uh, comes, it, it, it can be a problem. But let me give you some suggestions. Number one, wear a lighter mask, maybe not a cloth one, but a thin paper mask. It gives you just about the same protection, and it's not as suffocating when it gets hot. Uh, secondly, um, you know, change it if it gets wet. If you sweat or it gets water on it, it becomes less effective. If you're feeling short of breath and heated, get away from people. Take your mask off, even if it's just into, you know, moving into social distancing and, and uh, lowering your mask. When you do wear it, though, I went to, to a couple stores last week wearing my mask, and the people in the store had to wear a mask. Most of them had it down over their mouth and not over their nose. That does not protect you, nor does it protect others if you cough or sneeze. So you need to keep it on, completely covering your, your nose and mouth. But a lightweight mask will be much more comfortable. If you get hot, then get aside, take your mask off, cool, 
take a little while, get something cool to drink, and then put it back on and go back where you were with people. If you have some younger children, do you have some tips to help them with masks if you're going to be wearing them as well? Well, fortunately, they are probably the lowest risk. But, uh, yeah, I I would try to, you know, do things to, to make it more acceptable, draw pictures on the mask, make it a game, <laughs> that type of thing, and, and get them small and get them light. Most places are saying, though, you really don't need them on kids under two or three. And then just, you know, social distance, stay six feet away from people. If you're outside, it's not a problem. I, I went fly fishing a couple weeks ago, and I put a mask on when I was in with my guide in his car going to where we were getting into the water. But after we got on the boat, I took it off. You really don't need it if you're a park, you're swimming, or any of those things. So if you're outside, it's going to be a great summer for that. Uh, you really don't need a mask unless you're sitting real close to someone at a picnic table or something like that. That's great tips from Dr. David Stevens, as always. David, let's take a short break. and we come back, I know you have some other tips for how we can maybe boost our immune systems to prevent maybe getting the virus to begin with or at least mitigating its effects if we do get it. Some more to come here on Mornings with Carmen with Dr. David Stevens. Stay with us. It's about 20 minutes past the top of the hour, chatting with Dr. David Stevens this morning here on Mornings with Carmen. I'm Peter Kapsner filling in for the day. And Dr. Stevens, we've got quite a few texts coming in for listeners. Uh, Would you mind answering a few questions that they had? Sure, be happy to. So this one, I think we need to go through the stats a little bit again. You talked about how the impact on elderly, 65 and older, that the disease has. It says, what about the other 6 out of 10 if there were only 4 out of 10 that were elderly? But I think we, we need to go through those numbers again. So give us that. Right. The four out of five, that's 80 percent, eight out of 10 are over the age of 65 who've died with COVID. And uh, four out of 10 of those are in nursing homes. Interestingly enough, uh, nursing homes are one of the areas we really need to focus on and did a really poor job in that. They're only one percent of the population in the United States are in nursing homes, but 42 percent of the deaths that have happened Uh, have happened in nursing homes. Now, other elderly have gotten it at home and other places, but uh, when you almost have half the deaths occurring in nursing homes in 1% of the population, obviously we need to focus on that. One of the things being floated, Peter, is the people, you know, they've limited people, family members coming in, but staff have actually brought it in or other patients Mm -hmm. have brought it into the nursing home. And one of the things is they're experimenting with is actually creating living space for staff to stay at the nursing home if they're willing to do that until the public health emergency is over. So they're not going out and then bringing it in. Um, so innovative things, trying to look at, you know, how we can make them more clean, how we can uh, identify the people most risk and a nursing home and really keep this out. So. Uh, and this is highly concentrated. 10% of the states in the United States have 70% of the cases and 75% of the deaths. Over a third of those are in New Jersey and New York. Wow. And, uh, you know, 60% of the counties in the United States have one or fewer deaths. So you see that this is concentrated among people groups and it's concentrated in different parts of the country. So one size fits all. Lockdowns are not what we need. What we need to do is focus on where the problem is and deal with that and uh, not impair our economy any more than we already have. Yeah, super helpful tip. I have another listener writing in. Uh, can you ask, doctor, if a vaccine comes out, would it be made from yeah, perhaps aborted baby tissue? That's a tougher question, Dr. Stevens. I don't know my way around how vaccines are developed, but can you speak to that one at all? Yeah. 
This all goes back to uh, cell culture that was developed back in the 1960s with fetal cells actually out of Europe. And uh, it was a very successive fetal culture and vaccines have been developed on, you know, great, 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 great uh, uh, grand cultures, I guess you call way down the line as new cultures are formed uh, to make vaccines. And some of the vaccines uh, are uh, have that and some people are very concerned about it. This gets back to the whole issue of moral neutrality. Uh, and not moral neutrality, but moral um, being responsible. I'll yeah. just use that word for what happened and uh, culpability, moral culpability. And that happens in medicine all over the place. For example, most of our information about human anatomy came from grave robbers. That doesn't mean we don't use anatomy books to learn medicine, even though that was wrong when it happened. So there's a criteria you can find out about this on CMDA's website and uh, and look at for moral culpability. There's a great ethics statement on it. As far as I know, to get back to the question, this is not being developed on cell cultures from that cell line that came from an aborted baby. Uh, but I don't know that for an absolute fact because there are over 120 different vaccine attempts being uh, going on right now. Right. Which one's going to come through with the information? We'll have to take a closer look at. But no important to know is even if it was, no new babies are being sacrificed to create that vaccine. It would be using a culture that was developed over 50 years ago. Some people are uncomfortable with that. Some people are not. And, um, you know, to considering the seriousness of COVID vaccine and the fact babies aren't still being killed, I would take the vaccine even if it was. Mm, that's really helpful advice, Dr. Stevens. On a lighter note, uh, someone says to tell Dr. Stevens about Bennett Springs State Park in Missouri for great trout fishing as you're moving forward. Well, if they want to give me the invitation to come fish with them, I, I pretty <laughs> likely would take it up. That sounds great. Uh, I don't have many hobbies, but that's one of the one I really enjoy. I get to do it maybe half a dozen to a dozen times a year, but it's very relaxing. And when I do it, I can't think about anything else. Yeah. I'm focused completely on that fly and whether it's going to be taken. <laughs> I love it. Well, we've got a couple minutes left. I know I'd love to hear some tips from you about how to maybe help prevent or mitigate the effects of the virus. Yeah. Uh, first of all, just good health practices. Try to control your stress. It can be more stressful being at home if you're still there instead of in the workplace. It may not be able to go to church yet or other social things. So uh, try to find other ways through video meetings, uh, reading good books, getting into God's Word, claiming His promises, get your stress down, your health will be better. Uh, make sure you eat a good diet. One thing being at home, you know, the refrigerator is very close and uh, <laughs> you know, stay stay with fruits and vegetables and good protein and things with lots of vitamins in them and stay away from the junk food. That'll keep your immune system up. And then get out and get some exercise. A new study just recently showed that a half hour of, of brisk walking decreases uh, your chance of cancer significantly. Uh, this is going to affect every part of your life. Uh, I'm taking care of my son-in-law's or my son's dog is in my house. And it's been great because I'm out every day walking two or three miles with him mm. and getting more exercise than usual. So find somebody to walk with, a dog, a friend, a family Ooh. member. Uh, go to a park, uh, go somewhere in the woods uh, or just around the block and get some exercise. It doesn't have to be running. 
any type of exercise is helpful and help your mood and it'll help your health as well. well that's great stuff as always. Well, Dr. Stevens, that does bring our time to an end. It brings your last segment to an end. And I just can't thank you enough for all the wisdom and perspective you've offered to the listeners over all of this time. And uh, su- such a part of the great cloud of witnesses that are continuing this great story in the kingdom. So I look forward to our intersections in the future. I hope we stay in touch and uh, just blessings on the road ahead. Yeah, same to you, Peter. God bless you, and thank you for the joy of our friendship. Yeah, I love it. Well, that wraps up our time with Dr. Stevens. Doesn't wrap up our show for the day yet. We'll have Breakpoint here coming up, some bottom-of-the-hour news. And in the last half of this hour, we'll be talking with the Reverend Dr. Raleigh Washington about matters of systemic racism. And he is somebody that I would trust implicitly in so many of his different perspectives on this. So stay with us. A lot more to come here on Mornings with Carmen. But, Paul, I keep thinking about Dr. David Stevens and just uh, if you could go back and listen to every podcast episode that he's done on the show over all these years. I mean, can you imagine what you could go back and all learn? I mean, it's just off the top of his head. Mm -hmm. We ask him questions, listeners write in, and he has all of this wealth of wisdom just about our health. And and from a Christian standpoint, it's pretty remarkable. And even on top of that, you hear about the old country doctor who has that wonderful bedside manner. Right. That's Dr. Stevens. Yeah. That's him. No, if he could be our family doctor, I think I'd travel the world with him. Just you know, just in case <laughs> I got sick on any level, he'd be a guy that I would definitely trust. And he, he brought that to a lot. He did a lot of missionary medical yeah. work. And so he brought that to people who were so in need. I mean, it would have just been wonderful to watch. Yeah, really. So we do wish him the best. And again, if you want to text in and just send your best wishes, prayers, blessings to Dr. Stevens too, please do that at 877 933 2484. Up next, we've got Dr. Reverend Wally, Raleigh Washington waiting in the wings. We're going to talk a little bit about issues of social injustice. I'm going to ask him about systemic racism to kick things off here in just a couple minutes. Goodbye. No one wants to say it. And death is the most difficult goodbye of all. This is Max Locato. After our church had five funerals in seven days, the sorrow took its toll on me. I chided myself, come on, Max, get over it. Death is a natural part of living. Then I self-corrected. No, it isn't. Birth is, breathing is, belly laughs, big hugs, and bedtime kisses are. But death, we weren't made to say goodbye. God's original plan had no farewell, no final breath, day, or heartbeat. No matter how you frame it, goodbye doesn't feel right. But God has served notice. All farewells are on the clock. He has decreed a family reunion, and what a reunion it will be. Revelation 21.4 says, On that day, He will wipe every tear from their eyes. This long journey will come to an end. You'll see Him, and you'll see them. Isn't this our hope? This is Max Licato. Welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Dr. Peter Kapsner filling in for the day. And as you're listening this morning, I guess that you're probably paying attention, too, to the events around our world and what's happening with so many of these questions and conversations about social justice and and where we are as a country, where we are as a world. If you're like me, I don't really know always where to turn and and whose voices to trust in in this conversation. I don't want to just tune out. But again, I don't always know where I'm getting good information. And so I thought, what a great opportunity to invite Dr. Reverend Raleigh Washington into the show here this morning. Good morning, Raleigh. Good morning, Peter. So glad to be here with you. Yeah, I love being with you, Raleigh. Before we get into some of these conversations, maybe just in a minute or so, give our listeners a sense of a bit of your background, both in inner city Chicago and your work at Promise Keepers. Certainly. Um, I was born here in Jacksonville, where I am now, 
and lived here in the 40s and the 50s, raised in the projects uh, when racial segregation was the law of the land. And so I understand an awful lot about that. Went to college at Florida A&M. First uh, college graduate in my family had a commission as a second lieutenant, first uh, commission officer in my family. But I was an adjutant general's corps, personnel administration, an elite branch of the Army, and I was always the only black in the headquarters uh, in the military. You see, all of my enemies in the military were white. Conversely, all of my friends in the military were white. And so I learned early in the, my life in the military that you judge a person not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Uh, so that dynamic uh, has faced me. I had a wonderful career, uh, was very competitive, uh, yet because of my rapidly rising up the ladder, one white full colonel said, if you don't stop Raleigh Washington, you'll be the first black general in the adjutant general's corps. I was on that path. Yeah. Well, all of those accusations put me before a board of officers to say why I should remain. Three white generals in Fort McPherson, Georgia. After two weeks, they found me guilty of conduct unbecoming. Yet there was no evidence to validate that because it was all lies. So they offered me retirement in lieu of being discharged. I'd become a believer one year before that day. And my wife said, honey, don't take a tainted retirement because that phrase in lieu mean I would be embracing something that was not true. I turned it down. And the end result, I was separated from the military one day short of 20 years, serving 19 years, 11 months and 29 days. And I was discharged under other than honorable conditions. But I got out, went to the seminary, planted a church, had an accident, met a Jewish lawyer by the name of Jeff Strange. He heard that entire story and decided on a pro bono basis to fight the army for nine years. And at <laughs> nine years, he, t he caused the army to say, uncle, they reversed it. I went back, served one day so that I might retire. Uh, what's the moral of the story? My enemies were white, but my friends were also white and responded to me. And, and I am a retired lieutenant colonel today because of Jeff Strange, who heard my story. Jeff Strange is a Jewish lawyer, heard my story, fought for me, and made a difference. And so I stand today on the basis of understanding you do judge, not by color, but by content of character. Mm, that's great stuff, Raleigh. And of course, you worked for many of years in the inner city of Chicago on uh, matters of racial reconciliation. Your church was integrated between white people and black people. And that was quite a shaping experience as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. And after that, uh, serving at Promise Keepers, too, in the role of reconciliation, and, and you've continued that. So when we talk about some of these difficult matters and use terms like systemic racism, even the story that you just told about your experience in the Army, what I appreciate about it is that you still retain a love for the military and you retain a love for the people involved there and, and, and recognizing that it is about the content of character. So when I say this phrase, systemic racism, and sort of get out of all of the heat of the news that, let's say, I just uh, don't trust very much, whether it's Fox or CNN, and ask your perspective on that, having experienced some of it within the military, what would you say about this phrase, systemic racism? That is a very, uh, I think, very important question because it's a very important dynamic because there are pros and cons to that. Uh, there is uh, one group, certainly the African-Americans feel that is true, and there are people who believe that, no, the issue is something else. It's not that because things have changed. Uh, you can validate 
that there is not systemic racism in using numbers. In, in 2019, uh, 19 whites were murdered by policemen who were not armed, but only 10 African-Americans. Based on those numbers, we said, well, you see, that's not an issue. Those numbers are not the way you go after it. This is how I think you validate the presence of systemic racism. Uh, I have talked, preached, did conferences, seminars on racial reconciliation for over 40 years. I was vice president of reconciliation for Promise Keepers before I became president. And I've done those, I, I, as you said, Peter, I pastored a, a mixed racial church. And so I've talked about uh, racial reconciliation for over 40 years. During the, that 40-year period, I have asked well over 3,000-plus African-American men over that period of time, have you ever been abused by a white policeman? Not what you perceive, but was it true? Were you abused? Were you, were you stopped? Is it, is there, can you give an example where unquestionably you have been abused by a white policeman? If that's never happened to you, please stand or raise your hand. In 40 years and over 3,000 African-American men, I have never heard one man say that I have not experienced mm. that. I have experienced it myself more than once. Well, if it's true that virtually every African-American male indicates I have experiences, it's my life. I, I, I talked to my sons and I said, man, you, you gotta be careful because if this will happen to you, that to me validates the presence of systemic racism. So it's true. So to understand the dynamic of, and the presence of systemic racism, it's not the people, rather the policies that are carried out and enforced within various institutions. It's true in the police. It's true in Hollywood. In Hollywood, they claim to be politically correct and they claim to be inclusive. And no, we're not that way in Hollywood, but talk to the black actors and they will tell you, yes, uh, there is systemic racism in the uh, Academy Award, Awards Academy in, in Hollywood. So the issue is true. Systemic racism is a reality because we have faced it. And so uh, it does exist. And so how do you deal with it? Don't say that it does not exist. Recognize that it does exist. And then what shall we do? How can we deal mm -hmm. with the issue? You know, the issue of Black Lives Matter, which is so uh, controversial and popular now. It started and there's a bandwagon and everybody got on the bandwagon with Black Lives Matter. Then they began to evaluate who they are, look at their website and say, man, it's a problem. One of the founders... Uh, is, is really a Marxist and, and a Muslim, and it's a real problem. They have other agenda. Well, both of those dynamics are true. The problem with Black Lives Matter is because of the systemic racism and the oppression that blacks have felt for hundreds of years, and the reality, the phrase Black Lives Matter strikes a chord. And so there's some validity to that dynamic. Look at the, all of the, um, the the protests that have taken place. It's been young adults and across America, more white than black, if you looked at the crowds. 
They're saying the same thing in South Africa. They're saying the same thing in Australia, even in Iran. Uh, so what's happening? We've got a young adult, a millennial generation, that's a different dynamic, and they have embraced this. And so there's reality to compassion for the fact that Black Lives Matter, but there's a reality that the organization of Black Lives Matter is incredibly problematic. The money that they're getting and the ulterior motives that drive the train causes it to be a problem. So in order to deal with it, don't wipe it away and say, hey, it doesn't exist or Black Lives Matter is totally wrong. No, there's a value to it. However, the organization is problematic. And so it has to be addressed from the standpoint of understanding. There's reality to the phrase there's a problem with exactly what the organization and many of the organizers are doing in dealing with the issues at hand. Raleigh, that is outstanding stuff. I think I could listen to that all morning. Just, uh, again, a fair-minded look at uh, both dimensions of that. We've got to take a short break. When we come back, I know you and I talked off-air about the desire to get in. Where's the hope? What's the future in this? What do we see from a kingdom standpoint? So I can't wait to get into that with you next here on Mornings with Carmen. <laughs> Nine minutes before the top of the hour. I'm Peter Kapsner filling in for the morning for Carmen LeBurge and having a great conversation with Dr. Reverend Raleigh Washington this morning about matters of systemic racism, Black Lives Matter, and in the future of where we can find some hope in this. And Raleigh, just picking up where we left off a couple minutes ago, if we can both appreciate some of what Black Lives Matter is is standing for right now and understand and sympathize with, but also not fully embrace the platform like so many people are saying has to happen, where, where do we see maybe a different road ahead, an actual hopeful vision? of the future from a kingdom standpoint? I really think that um, as we do, Peter, what you said, um, see, all lives matter, but all lives don't matter if we ignore that there's been oppression and systemic racism with black lives. And so you deal with both of those issues to understand. I think that organization has been corrupted in that dynamic. Uh, how do we really move matter. How do we really uh, bring unity to what transpired? Earlier this morning in a prayer meeting, a person said this, uh, that President Trump is a disruptor. But then he said, but my friend said, no, he's not a disruptor. Uh, uh, he is a revelator. What he does is he reveals truth, and sometimes truth is painful in terms of the dynamic. And he said, he stood in front of the church and he held the Bible and he said, I wish he had opened the Bible. And when I heard that, I said, uh, they're dancing around the issue. Uh, President Trump, uh, had he opened the Bible, he's not the one that's called or prepared to deal with the contents of the Bible. It's right that the Bible is key, but the right person who's called by God to use the Bible is the one that needs to be standing up, speaking to the people now to make a difference. And that is God's leaders, the church, the pastors, the believers. You see, uh, we had the Emancipation, Emancipation Proclamation. That changed a lot of things, but then it didn't stop what took place uh, with Jim Crow laws. We got rid of Jim Crow laws. That didn't stop what took place with uh, Trayvon Martin. We got to 
black president. But that didn't stop what's happening now today. So what is it going to take to change? Where is the hope? The hope is really based in understanding what God has called us to, and that is genuine, committed relationships. The two greatest commandments are to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. To answer this problem, to solve the problem, we need to have the church become influencers of society. We need to have the church to reach out to make a difference where uh, things are. Instead of uh, uh, having uh, the young people drive the train going all kinds of directions, we need the pastors to come forward and demonstrate that we can make a difference. But in order to speak that and have people hear it, the church has to demonstrate within the walls of the church, we know how to live together. We have established relationships and here are our relationships. So if the churches establish relationships in the church and with friends and across racial lines with churches, suburban and uh, urban churches coming together in relationship, and then the leaders can stand forth, we can then speak to the crowd and say the answer is in committed, genuine relationships. I wrote eight principles that drive that home in my book, Breaking Down Walls. Simply, the eight points of this, if you establish a relationship, you got to recognize Jesus as the foundation, and the relationship has to be committed, it has to be intentional, it has to be sincere, it has to be sensitive, it has to be sacrificial, it has to be empowering, it has to be interdependent. And interdependent says, I need you, Peter, and all that you bring to the table is white, but Peter, you need me, and all that I bring to the table is white. And we have to have a committed relationship, and if we live that way, we will resolve the strife that exists today. Raleigh, that's amazing stuff. Uh, we're just running out of time right now, but I appreciate what you're calling the church to in that, to live by the courage of our convictions, to use that phrase. And and even if it might cost uh, maybe the growth of the church or, or the, the supposed relevance of the church or some of what we're doing in building these franchise churches, if instead we can move towards the courage of our convictions and shine that light, uh, there really isn't any other hope in the world. Absolutely. Absolutely right question. And Peter, things are changing. Right now, research tells us that 30 percent of all evangelical churches in America today, or at least 30 percent are more diverse. So diversity is becoming a reality. And a lot of that happened because of what we did in the last 25 years in Promise Keepers, always preaching reconciliation. Mm -hmm. I think it has caught and I think things are changing. And as the church indeed continue to do this, we will regain our influence on society, and that's going to make a difference. Oh, I love it, Raleigh. Thanks so much for joining us again this morning. Give us the wisdom and perspective of the kingdom. Have a great afternoon. I know you and I will be in touch soon. Thank you, Peter. We'll take a short break here and wrap up our show for the 23rd of June on Mornings with Carmen. I'll tell you what, Paul, there's nothing like a little wisdom from the kingdom to bring some peace into this. I'll tell you that. That was great stuff from Raleigh this morning. Oh, he only had a few more, you know, two few minutes with him. That's oh, all gosh, say. we could have gone a couple hours there. That yeah. is absolutely for sure. Appreciate just all of where he's been and all of what he's suffered through in order to bring that kind of wisdom. That's almost mm-hmm. always the way of it, isn't it? It's through suffering and pain and turmoil and trial that, that you just bring into this place to be an ambassador of reconciliation. Mm-hmm. Well, look at Jesus. Yeah, that's absolutely. It's unfortunately, unfortunately, the way of it. Well, let me close this morning in the way that we opened a couple hours 
ago, just reminding ourselves that our citizenship, as much as we love and participate in our country as we should, that as Paul says in Philippians 3, verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await our Savior from there. Have a great day, everybody. We'll catch you tomorrow here again on Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.